Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we want nothing more than to hear from you. And so we pray that our ears would be open to hearing, our eyes would be open to seeing, and our hearts would be opening to responding to your word today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So a, a few weeks ago, we had talked about what it means to be a lukewarm Christian, right? And what are steps that we can take in order to prevent living the lukewarm life and becoming people that are hot in terms of our love for Jesus, that show just a high love and intensity in our love for Christ and not wanting to be cold. And so this morning we want to kind of piggyback on that. So we're not lukewarm. We've, we've talked about what lukewarm means and how do we fix that. But this morning I want to talk about what it looks like and the characteristics of a life that is lived fully devoted to Jesus. When we look at the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit. And the first one is really simple, the love. There's nine fruits listed, the first one is love. That makes sense, doesn't it? God is love. Love is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, and we could talk about how that truth is so important, and that is such an important thing. But if you took a close look, the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's not self-control. It's not patience. It's joy. That when Paul is making his list, inspired by the Holy Spirit, love was the first thing he listed, and joy was the second thing he listed. There's a friend of mine his name is Manny Mill. If you've heard, he, he actually did a podcast with him. And Manny is just amazing because when you talk to Manny, just his love for Jesus is so apparent. And, and when I sit with him, I just can't help but smile because you, we'll be talking about something and then, okay, I don't, don't be shocked. He'll just shout, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And you're like, oh my word, like he's just, his love and his joy are contagious, and you can't be in the room with this man without feeling that love and that contagious joy that he has in his love for Jesus. But then there's other people. I prefer to refer to them as curmudgeons, okay? And so if I could be honest in a moment of transparency... My grandmother was kind of a curmudgeon. Shh, don't tell her, okay? <laughs> but like, I remember a time when she had visited us and I said to my mom, I was going out, I was probably 13, we were going to the movies, and my grandmother was like, you can't go to the movies because if Jesus comes back, you won't be able to meet him in the sky. Okay, so this might be hard to believe, but when I was a teen, 
I maybe had some smart aleck remarks to make, okay? <laughs> I know, it's true, just trust me. And so I said, well, Grandma, that means if I go to church and Jesus comes back when we're in church, I won't be able to meet him in the sky. And that is the story of this scar because I immediately, <laughs> right? Like this scar right there. Because my grandmother, she had a list of things that you're not supposed to do. She had this list, and she was, she loved Jesus, and she, she is in heaven, and now she's rallying the disciples to, to get me when I get there. But like, she loved Jesus, but she was looking for all the things that I shouldn't do rather than rejoicing in the salvation that we do have. By the way, in honor of my grandmother, I hope to put escape hatches in the skylights that open from the inside, so if we're raptured, we could just go anyway. That's a, that's a whole different subject. There's two approaches to our faith. We can live in the joy of the Lord. We can live with the fruit of the Spirit that is joy. Or we can sit like the Pharisees did and try and nitpick and figure out all the things that we shouldn't do. And then when we figured out all those other things that we shouldn't do, we'll figure out more that we shouldn't do. But it's clear that as we look through Scripture that joy is a major theme in the life of the believer. This week, as you read your Bible, look for all the times where it talks about joy and rejoicing or things, the joy comes in the morning. Joy is a major theme in the Bible, and we should reflect that in our own lives. So this morning, I want to focus on the words of Jesus here in John 16 and see what he teaches us about joy. So I'll have three points for you, just a quick outline. But before we do, I want to give you just a little context so we can understand even better the words that Jesus spoke. So here we are. This is John 16. Like we said, now Jesus has just left the upper room. He's just washed the disciples' feet and fed them the Last Supper. And he's giving his final words. He's about to go in the garden and pray, and the blood is going to come like from sweat. They're going to arrest him. He's going to be betrayed. And then... Within 24 hours of the words that Jesus is speaking, Jesus will be laid in a tomb because he's been crucified. So Jesus is literally on his last day. But it would be helpful for us also to understand as we look back, because this has also been a long week. Okay? Because on Sunday morning, Jesus said, go find a donkey, and they sat on a donkey, and all the people laid down palm branches as he came into Jerusalem, welcomed as a conquering king. And sometime either Sunday or Monday, Jesus went into the temple and flipped the tables and said, you've turned my father's house into a house of thieves. This was a really big week for Jesus it was a really big week for the disciples. And there is an anticipation on the part of the 12 
about what is coming as they've seen Jesus come in, they've seen him flip the tables, they've seen him act in such a way that is completely out of his character. And so it's with that in mind that we need to look at these words. So let's look at verse 19. Are you discussing amongst yourselves what I meant when I said, a little while you will no longer see me, and again in a little while you will see me? So in the verses prior to this, Jesus has said to the disciples, in a little while you're not going to see me, and then you are going to see me. Okay? We know what that means, right? We know in a little while, Jesus is about to be crucified, he's about to be buried, and he's going to be gone. And then, a few days later, he's going to rise from the grave, and we're going to see him again. Right? We can understand that because we can look back through the lens of history and know that that's what he's saying. If you are the disciples that have just gone through, you've just gone through that week with everything that's happened, and now you're probably pretty tired, you had a meal, it's been on an emotional roller coaster, and Jesus says this to you, and you're like, what does this mean? Why would you say this? There's confusion, there's probably fatigue, and they start to talk amongst themselves. And again, I want to be like, well, why are they talking? So I, there's two questions that I thought of. Why didn't they ask Jesus? Why didn't they just say, Jesus, what do you mean? We've seen them do that multiple times through Scripture. And what is it that they were talking about? So my guess is they're walking along the way, and Jesus said that, and maybe... I. I I don't know why they did. My best guess is they were like, man, like Jesus has been telling us a whole lot because if you look at John 15 and 16, Jesus is throwing a lot at people. Like if you've ever been in a college class and you have a question and you're like, boy, that lecture was too much. I don't know if I can even handle anymore, right? And so that would be my guess is they just heard so much from what Jesus was saying that they're they could barely contain it all, and so they're, they're concerned about following up with this and not being able to understand any of it. But now they start talking amongst themselves to try and figure out what they say. So here's these disciples who are thinking Jesus is coming to sit on the throne of David, to return the throne in Jerusalem, in David's city, and they're like, if you are coming to reclaim the throne, why on earth would you leave? You just came in like a king. Now we're ready for your coronation. Why are you leaving? That sounds, that's not a good idea. And then, if that's not what he's doing, if Jesus isn't coming to claim the throne... Okay, maybe that makes sense why he would leave, but why would you come back? There's a lot of questions going on 
in their minds, and they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to work amongst themselves to figure it out. And that's where Jesus chimes in. He says, I hear you guys are talking. Let's have a discussion. Let me talk to you about what's going on. And so here's our outline. We see an outline where Jesus offers the answer to them about what that means. In a little while, I'm going away, and you won't see me. And then in a little while, you will see me. And it can be summed up in three steps. Instruction, illustration, and application. Okay? An instruction, an illustration, and an application. So let's start with instruction. Now let me say for clarity purposes, when I'm talking about instruction, I'm not talking about instruction like an instruction manual. So this is not a step-by-step process. This is an instruction where Jesus is providing information that the disciples would not know in order that they might have the knowledge that Jesus is imparting to them. So that's what I mean when I mean instructing them. He is instructing them on what is to happen. So let's look at verse 20 and see what Jesus shares with them. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and you will mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. You see, Jesus says, you guys are going to experience pain. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience sorrow. Friends, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow. And in the recent years coming out of a pandemic, we've talked about the kind of the, the needs, the emotional needs of people, and the, the mental illness and the depression and the stress that people are living under as we, we deal with the effects of what we've gone through together over the last few years. There's a singer, her name is M. Byhold. She's a younger singer. And I, it's, she wrote a song about a bug. It's a, a, I can't remember the name of it. I should have written it down, I, so forgive me. But listen to the lyrics that she writes. This is a song that you can hear on the radio. If you turn on the right station, you'll hear this. It's all over the place. Do you ever get a little bit tired of life? Like you're not really happy, but you don't want to die. Like you're hanging on by a thread, but you've got to survive. Because you've got to survive. Like your body's in the room, but you're not really there. Like you have empathy inside, but you don't really care. Like you're fresh out of love, but it's been in the air. Am I past repair? There's water in my boat, and I'm barely breathing, trying to stay afloat. So I get these quick repairs to cope. Guess I'm just broken and broke. Friends, this this is startling for us because here's a young woman who wrote these words that, like, make me feel for this young lady. Make me say, wow, I just want to talk with you. I just want to give you hope. I just want to provide a hope. When she says, I'm not happy, but I don't want to die. 
My guess is there's a lot of people in the world that are just trying to survive. But let me suggest to you that this is not just something that is a today issue, that this has been something that has gone on for years. Because the Beatles wrote the song Eleanor Rigby and they said, look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all belong? This has been something that has gone on for history where people are dealing with their pain and as they deal with their pain and struggles and hurts and they deal with the stress that life comes, they just don't know what the answer is. And Jesus says, you will mourn. You will weep. I think of someone like Robin Williams who was this comedic actor. He was Mork, and then he did Good Morning Vietnam, and he was, could do an impersonation of anyone. And he brought joy to so many people, but then in 2014, he took his own life because he just couldn't take it anymore. He was a little bit tired of life. So Jesus says in his instruction, you're going to mourn. There will be hurt. And he adds a little something. And he says, and the world will rejoice in your suffering. The world will rejoice in your suffering. I thought about that. that that's like hard that I could be mourning and someone could rejoice in it. And I was like, boy, what does that look like? And back in 2015... 2016, I, I, I decided that Angie and I would, we were just going to, we'd talk together and we'd prayed about it, and we just decided one day that we were going to, cold turkey, leave Facebook. Because we'd get into Facebook, and there would be political arguments, there would be theological arguments, like the only thing that happens on Facebook is arguments, Right? and ads and invitations to things that you don't want to go to, right? Like, and I was like, boy, I don't want to be fighting with people. These people are my friends. I don't ever get to see them. We don't get to, and all we're doing is arguing and fighting. And all I'm doing is looking to see if people like the posts that I have. And all I'm doing is I'm looking at all the fun and how great everyone else's life is. And I'm feeling depressed because I'm not in Florida on a beach, Right? I'm like, oh boy, only three people like my post? I thought everyone would like, why aren't these people liking my post? And that day, when I canceled my Facebook account, when I got off of Facebook, there was a weight that was lifted off my shoulders. And when you look at social media today, when you look at things like TikTok, which don't look at TikTok, okay? Like kids especially don't look. There's these, just these little moments where you're just trying to cope with your pain by trying to have a post that'll be fun. When you're looking at these, social media is just this short-term remedy for a long-term problem. Yes, social media is good for communicating and staying in touch. I'm not telling you all to get off of social media, but 
Your life might feel a little better if you do. But (laughs) I understand that it's a part of life. But when you look at people with their phones stuck to their face, you're like, you're not having real connection. You're not having that reality. And on their social media, people can get mean. And you can post something and people will attack you for just sharing an opinion. That's Jesus saying, man, the world will rejoice in your suffering. But then he says something, and this is so crucial. He says, but I am going to turn your mourning into rejoicing. Did you catch that? says, I'm going to turn your mourning into rejoicing. Let's look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm going to take your mourning, I'm going to take your pain, I'm going to take your sorrow and take it away from you. He says, I'm going to turn it. That this, this uh, sorrow and this pain and this suffering that you have has got you focused on the pain and the suffering. But I'm going to turn it so it's no longer focused on the suffering, but I'm going to have it focus on me. Right? Because when we go through the process of celebrating that Holy Week and we think about how Jesus died, we're like, Jesus died. I love Jesus. Jesus is my friend. He's my Savior. So we come in on Good Friday and we're wearing black like we're going to a funeral. But then on Easter Sunday morning, man, break out the pink pants. Bring out the colors because it's worth celebrating. It's a joyful time. Because we've turned our focus from the death to Jesus. Right? Jesus takes our circumstances and he turns it. So that our mourning will turn into rejoicing. So that's the instruction. You're going to have suffering, but Jesus is going to turn our suffering into rejoicing. Second, we have an illustration. Look at the illustration. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because the joy of having brought a human being into the world. Friends, when... What a great illustration. You have a mother in labor who's agonizing and has gone through not just the childbirth, but the delivery of holding on to a child nine months. Because from what I understand, pregnancy can be a really miserable thing. I I don't know, but I've, I've heard that there's times of misery and you just... Anyway, I better stop. But I hear that that can be a really miserable thing. But when a mother is holding their baby... None of that matters anymore, does it? Last week when they did a baptism and you baptize that baby and we enter in a covenant relationship with that little child saying, we want to raise you in the ways of the Lord. That's something, isn't it? 
The other day I was in a store, I forget, I don't even know what store it was in, but there was a baby in the cart and the baby was looking at me and I was like, okay, there's a baby, I've got to make faces. And so I started making faces and doing silly things and everyone around me is like, what's going on? And like, but it didn't matter because I could see that little baby smiling. I don't care about what else. What did I care about? The joy that was showing up on that baby's face. So the illustration that Jesus brings about the turning is a mother in the labor pains with a child. So we see the instructions. You're going to have sorrow, but it will turn into rejoicing. And the illustration is a mother and her child. Okay, And the last one, so instruction, illustration, and application. This is verse 22. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On that day, you will ask nothing of me, but very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you receive, so that your joy may be complete. So Jesus says, hey, you're going to have sorrow. And he says, you have sorrow right now. Because he knows that in minutes, in minutes, it's, the guards are going to walk into that garden. Judas is going to kiss him on the cheek, and he's going to be arrested. And the disciples are going to scatter they're going to watch Jesus be tried and then they're going to watch him be crucified. The sorrow is there. But he says, listen to me. When you see me again, you will have joy. When you see me again, you will have joy. So let's Let's go to that moment. Here's Mary Magdalene, who's come to the garden to prepare Jesus' body for his final burial. She probably didn't skip to the grave. Very solemn thing, right? And she goes, and the body is not there. The tomb is empty. And what is her response? Where have you taken the body? We talked about this a couple weeks ago with Martha who said, Jesus, I believe that you could have done it and I believe you will do it, but I don't believe it today. Mary is saying, someone must have taken the body. And then she sees Jesus and recognizes Jesus. And her sorrow is turned into joy. Can you imagine, like, I hope there's video cameras from heaven that we can look, because when I get to heaven, I want to see that moment, right? Because what a hug that must have been, right? When Mary Magdalene is like, wait, you're alive. 
I watched you die. I watched them bury you. I'm here to prepare your body for your final burial, and you're alive. Jesus turned the sorrow into joy. And then they go, she goes to the upper room and says, hey, uh, I just saw Jesus. He's alive. And Peter and John sprint down to the tomb, and they're like, holy cow, what is going on? And I wonder if they weren't talking about these words of Jesus. In a little while, you won't see me. And then in a little while, you will see me. But Jesus continues. He says, so what I need you to do is I need you to recognize that I'm alive. I need you to recognize the work that I've done. And I need you to go to the Father and ask him for the things that I would ask him for. I need you to align your will with my will. And when you do that, God will give you everything that you ask for. And your joy will be complete. Not a partial joy, but a complete joy. Jesus says, this is how you want to have that complete joy. And when we think about what Jesus said, what, what the author of Hebrews said about Jesus, who said, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That as Jesus endured his agony on the cross, there was a joy that he was experiencing. He had the joy of being reconciled to you and I as he suffered that continued, allowed him to continue to suffer for all of us. His hurt, his pain, his sorrow turned into joy. I just want to close with a couple things here. There's a great illustration of this principle in the book of Genesis. I'm not going to go over the whole story because that's like a whole sermon series. I'm going to get it to you quick. There was a guy named Joseph. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Because of that, Joseph's 11 brothers didn't really like him. So they sold him into slavery, into Egypt, and then he was, became one of the, the best servants that the master in the house of Potiphar. And so Potiphar made him the head of the whole house, and then Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He said no, so she accused him of raping her or trying to rape her. And so then Joseph goes to jail. So then Joseph is in jail, and he's serving, and he becomes esteemed in jail. And so then he interprets some dreams, and ultimately... He becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And God used him to save his people in Egypt and from surrounding companies because God prepared the people of Egypt for a seven-year famine because Joseph was faithful. When I put myself in Joseph's shoes and I consider all the circumstances that Joseph lived through, I think I would have chosen the life of the curmudgeon, right? My brothers hate me. 
My dad thinks I'm dead. I've never, I haven't seen my dad in 20 years. I'm in jail for something that I didn't even do. I was accused of something that was actually the opposite. Why would I feel good? I'm just going to live my life for myself and I'm going to enjoy the power that I have. And then, in the famine, the brothers come looking for the food. If I can be honest, Joseph's 11 brothers are probably pretty grateful that they weren't my brothers. Ooh, boy, I would have put them through it. But Joseph was filled with love and compassion for them. So he reveals himself, and he says, why don't you bring dad back? So the brothers go back, and they bring Benjamin, his other brother, and, and Jacob back. And there's a moment where it talks about how Jacob and Joseph, when they first saw each other, embraced Again, if I go to the video archives in heaven, I want to see that moment too. Because my guess is that might be the greatest hug the Bible has ever seen. Where a father who's thought he's lost his son for 20 years, for 20 years he's dealt with the sorrow and the grief of losing his son, now sees him again. And a son who's been away from his father all this time and has had no reason to, to even think that he might be alive. And they embrace. What a moment that must have been. But that moment of beauty and love doesn't occur without the sorrow. That wasn't a hey, I just got home from work. It's good to see you, Dad. Here's a hug. That was, man, the sorrow has turned into rejoicing. And later on, after Jacob dies, the brothers say, hey, Joseph, you're not really going to hold this against us now that Dad's gone. And Joseph says these words, you intended to harm me, but God intended it. You intended it to harm me, but God intended for good. What a perspective to have, to recognize that as people who are fully devoted followers of Christ, that God will use all things for the good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. As we close, I just want to take just a brief moment and, boy, we've been, my family, both the, the regular family and the extended family, we have been on that roller coaster of sorrow and joy. For those of you who don't know, a couple weeks ago we got a call and my father-in-law was taken into ICU and he was in bad shape. And we thought we'd said goodbye. But we sent an email to the prayer chain 
We said, boy, we need you to pray. Boy, and you guys prayed. And to our modest estimation on the low end, we figured 475 different churches were praying for my father-in-law. I talked to Jess the next morning, and I said, Jess, and if you remember, I preached about believing God can do a miracle today just two days earlier. And I said, Jess, I'm caught in the place, and I'm just not sure there's a miracle here. The doctors came in and they said, you need to sign a DNR. Because even if we can resuscitate him, if something were to happen, there's going to be no quality of life. For those of you who know my wife, you would know that that was probably a bad thing to say when she was in the room. And she looked the doctors in the eye and she says, you know, we're Christians. And we believe that God is the one who chooses when life begins and when life ends. So if you need to resuscitate him, you're going to do that. The next day, they said, wow, he's doing better. Let's move him out of the ICU. And if you, in Rockford, they have the, the system, every floor you move up is, means you're a little better. So if you're on the second floor, that's the ICU. That's where the real bad patients are. Then the third floor, it's a little bit less critical. And then the fourth floor is you're just like a regular patient, right? So, and then a few days later, they moved him up to the fourth floor. And, and friends, this is, no means is he out of the woods. He's not out on a golf course today. But on Friday, they moved him to a rehab center. And he's off all the things. He's eating. He's doing well. He's in great spirits. Because people prayed. In the name of Jesus, for, for Jesus' will. So I am eternally grateful for the prayers that each and every one of you prayed, both in this building and at home. I've seen it. I am here to testify to you today that our Lord, our Jesus, can turn that sorrow into rejoicing. Friends, if we trust Jesus, we look to him and we know that he is our Savior, our lives should be reflected in the joy that we have. That's not to say we're always going to be the happiest. By the way, that's also, you can still take your medicines, you can still talk to your counselors, still do those things. Those are common graces that God provides for us. But we need to remember that our risen Savior has given us the greatest reason to live a life of great joy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And we thank you so much, Jesus, that we, we know that you went to the cross, that you paid for our, our sins, you paid for my sins, and you rose from the grave that we might have the joy 
of eternity with you. And we can't do anything but give you praise in your holy name. Amen.